me read for us Romans 15, 14 through 18. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I've written you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said. There was a strange story back in February. There were four guys went out hunting geese. It's a true story. A flock flew overhead. They started firing from a blind, one of the guys hit a goose and it fell from the sky. And ironically, the trajectory of that falling bird was just so that it made a direct hit on the head of one of his three friends. Shot it out of the sky and it landed on one of his three friends, a guy named Robert Mulheimer. A Canada goose is a big bird and it knocked the guy out cold, injured his head and face and broke two of his teeth. Sometimes, and maybe most times, we can't see the consequences of our actions beforehand. What seems like a good thing doesn't always turn out that way. And that is never truer than in the words we speak. Even when we're trying to say something that's helpful, meant to be a blessing, our words can be misunderstood, our intentions misconstrued. It's better to think twice before we say something than to wish a thousand times afterwards that we hadn't said it. You ever dashed off an email or a text, hit the send button, and in that very moment realized you shouldn't have sent it? Antoine Loveless was a, <clears throat> is a young guy. He was angry at his mom, and he was texting a friend to complain about her. The moment he hit the send button, he realized he just texted his complaint about his mom to his mom, not to his friend. Fortunately, he had an app on his phone, On Second Thought, that's the app, and it allowed him to unsend text messages within 60 seconds. I know some of you who should have that app on your phone. <clears throat> By the time that he gets to this part of the letter to the Romans, St. Paul's almost ready to hit the send button. He doesn't have an unsend app. So when it's gone, it's gone. And he's written this long letter, very long letter, that includes teaching, exhortation, reprimand, and more. And so before he hits send, he stops and thinks about how his readers might take this. Has he written anything that might offend them or hinder them and their service to Christ? Well, they ask, who does this guy think that he is to talk to us like that? Paul doesn't want to hinder these Christians. He wants to help them. So after thinking through what he's written, he decides to add a paragraph that will help his readers get the most out of what he's written. He doesn't want them saying, man, this guy Paul thinks that he's all that. He wants them to say, man, this guy Paul believes that Jesus is Lord. At the same time, 
Paul wants to make sure his readers know that he speaks with authority on these matters. So in verse 15, he reminds them that he has the authority to write this kind of letter, delegated authority, not authority he's taken on himself. He's not writing because he thinks he's all that, but because he knows he was chosen by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He writes this letter to fulfill a God-given responsibility to share his knowledge not to gratify a self-centered need to impress people. So we'll come back to verse 14. We'll skip that for a moment. We'll come back in a few minutes to verse 14. First look at verse 15 where Paul explains his reason for writing this letter. He's written to the Romans because of the grace God gave me. Now some people back then and today have distorted what Paul said about grace by treating it as if it were a license to sin. But Paul thinks of grace as a license to serve. Grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a go-to-work invitation. Paul describes that grace in verse 16 as grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus. Now, pause right there. When we hear the word minister, anybody in our culture... We think of someone who went to a Christian college or a seminary, went through a long process of ordination, and now serves the church, the, the reverend, if you will. That's not what Paul or his readers would have thought. The word he chose was frequently used, it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, very frequently of the Levites who served in the temple. They assisted the priests in the rituals of worship, particularly in presenting sacrifices. Paul, likewise, assists the high priest, Jesus. As one of Jesus' many assistants, Paul's role was the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. The Greek is more like priesting, it's a verb. Priesting the gospel of God. Priesting the gospel was part of this grand liturgy in, of worship that would culminate in bringing people who were once far away from God to God and presenting them as a precious offering to him. Frequently in Paul's letters, what gets sacrificed to God in worship is not a thing, but a person, or in this case, a people. The free, willing sacrifice of oneself, more than any other sacrifice, declares the goodness and the worth of God. The sacrifice of Jesus being the ultimate example that God is worthy. Now, when we read the Old Testament, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I've read the Old Testament, I kind of get the idea that God was really into animal sacrifices. You know, lambs and goats and bulls and birds. It, frankly, it kind, it's kind of gory. But Old Testament or New, the sacrifice God really wants from people is the sacrifice of themselves. Giving a lamb was always just a way of giving oneself, of saying to God, I'm willing to sacrifice something really important to me in order to worship you because you're worthy of all that I am and all that I have. The real reason God wants people to offer themselves is so that he can give them back their true selves in return. You'll never get your true self unless you give what you have right now to God. In verse 17, Paul says, in effect, look, I'm not going to apologize about making such a big deal about my service to God. It is a big deal. God is bringing people who never knew him to himself 
just as he said he would. He's fulfilling his promises. He's changing the world, and I get to be right in the middle of it. So, of course, I'm excited about it. Yeah, have you ever met someone? I sat with a um, guy who was the president of a college this week, and, and I asked a few questions, and he did a lot of talking. And he was excited about what he was talking about. Here's a guy who's accomplished some pretty extraordinary things. And he was eager to tell about it. If you've been with those kind of people, you spend five minutes with that person. And he or she will be talking about their thing. Now, their thing might be the local church or a youth ministry or a social service organization or health initiative or stamp collecting. It doesn't really matter. They love to talk about it. It occupies their thoughts, and it monopolizes their conversations. So you listen to them for five minutes, and if you are discerning at all, you'll know whether they're talking to exalt themselves or if they're talking to exalt their cause. Follow the glory. If the glory keeps coming back to them, then make an excuse and get out of the conversation as soon as you can. It's not really worth having. But if the glory goes elsewhere, even to stamp collecting, the conversation will not be without profit. When St. Paul talked about what he was doing in service to God, he was excited about it. He clearly thought it the most important thing in the world. He boasted about it. That's the Greek word that's, that's used in verse 17 that the NIV translates as glory. Listen to Paul for five minutes and you'll know he's not trying to impress you with himself. He's excited about Jesus and what he's doing in the world. He's awed and grateful to get to be a part of it. And so Paul could be humble and boastful at the same time. I've sometimes heard people say, humility is not thinking badly of yourself. And I agree with that totally. Humility is not thinking badly of yourself. And then they add, it's not thinking of yourself. I don't think that's true. Or at least it's not the whole truth. The difference between the humble person and the proud person is not that one thinks of himself and the other doesn't. The difference lies in where their thinking leads, where it ends. If the true end of their thoughts is themselves, their pleasure, their possessions, their position, then they're proud people, regardless of the words in which they dress their thoughts. If their thinking leads past themselves, may go through themselves, they may tell stories about themselves, but if their thinking always leads past themselves to others, especially to the other, then they're humble people. Paul was one of them. I wish that we talked about our ministry the way Paul talks about his. Would that we boasted about Lockwood Church and what Jesus is doing here the way Paul boasted about his apostleship to the Gentiles. We have something to be excited about. You know, within the last two weeks, I've heard of five people who've come to faith in Jesus Christ through the witness of God's people at Lockwood. And then today, Ken was telling me about the latest uh, camp they had at the prison. What prison was that, Ken? In Jackson. And, and how many people came to the Lord? 17 people. You know, God is doing things through the witness of God's people at Lockwood. We ought to make a big deal about that. But be sure the glory goes beyond Lockwood and its people to the one who's at work within us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Yeah, I don't think we boast enough. You know, it's ironic 
but pride can keep us from boasting. Because pride makes us worry that people will think we're proud. But Paul boasted a lot. He uses the word, the verb boast, 38 times. And he uses the nouns for boast or boasting 23 more times. He understood that there is good boasting and there's bad boasting. And the absence of good boasting is just as troubling as the presence of bad boasting. Now, remember, before hitting the send button on this letter to the Romans, Paul reviewed what he'd written, and the thought crossed his mind that his readers might mistake his boldness for presumption. They might wonder, who does this guy think he is? So he tries to answer that question in verses 15 through 18. He's a servant of Christ Jesus with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel. He's written to them because God graced him with a job to do as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul doesn't say, hey, you ought to listen to me because I have years of experience, I have a penetrating intellect, and I have studied under some of the best teachers. He says, you should listen to me because I work for Messiah Jesus. But in taking the time to think through what he's written, Paul realizes that there are two categories of misunderstandings possible here, not just one. People might misunderstand what he thought of himself. They might think that he, he thought he was all that. So he addresses that concern in verses 15 through 18. But they might misunderstand what he thought of them. They might assume, because he wrote them this long, comprehensive letter full of biblical references, there are almost five dozen of them in this letter. They might assume that he thinks they don't know anything. And the fastest way to turn someone off to what you have to say to them is to treat them as if they're ignorant. So Paul, who knows that, reassures them of his high regard for them. He does that in verse 14, so let's go back there. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. You yourselves are full of goodness, comp complete in knowledge, competent to instruct one another. Now, does that sound like flattery to you? Is Paul buttering them up? Flattery, someone said, is like chewing gum. It's okay to enjoy it, just don't swallow it. Paul wouldn't give them something to swallow that would hurt them, would he? No, he wouldn't. This isn't flattery. I think Paul was really convinced, or better, persuaded by his good friends in the Roman church. Two of his best friends in the world are in that Roman church. He's listened to them. He's become persuaded that these Christians are on track with God's plan. He mentions three important traits that inspired his confidence. First, they're full of goodness. Goodness implies goodwill towards others that is expressed in kindness and generosity. In the Bible, goodness is described as a fruit, as a fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the light. It is not an on-demand virtue. It takes time to develop. It's a fruit. It has to grow in the lives of people, people who belong to God and have his spirit. Paul was convinced that the Roman Christians were growing this virtue of goodness, goodwill expressed in kindness and generosity. He was equally convinced that the Roman Christians had knowledge. These people, they've thought, they've, they've learned, they've studied. But knowledge of what? I think knowledge of God, of what he's like and what he cares about. 
a knowledge of the Bible, of what it says and what it means for life, and knowledge of people, what makes them tick, what makes them feel loved. Knowledge can't take the place of goodness, but knowledge is important. Knowledge without goodness, it'll go off in the wrong direction. It'll go off, knowledge without goodness will go in the direction of hell. Goodness without knowledge won't go anywhere. A person needs both, and Paul, from what he'd heard from his good friends, believed that the Romans had both, goodness and knowledge. The third trait he mentions is competence to instruct one another. Because the Romans meant well, they were full of goodness. Because they understood well, they were complete in knowledge, they were able to instruct well. The word the NIV translates instruct could also be rendered advise, counsel, admonish, warn. It's the kind of thing that a counselor does when you go to see him or her. Paul believed the Roman church members were qualified to do that kind of thing. So to get the idea, imagine a Christian coming to a fellow church member, to you, with a problem. And he tells you, look, my wife and I, we really aren't getting along, and we haven't been for a long time. And the word divorce has come up recently quite a few times. And I know God hates divorce, but we can't go on like this. And I don't know what else to do. In that situation, you, full of generosity and goodwill, with knowledge of what God is like and what he said in the Bible, counsel the Christian who's facing difficulty. Now, professional counselors, especially Christian ones, are a valuable resource. I've referred people to, to professional counselors many times. But the first line of counsel comes from our Christian brothers and sisters in the church. But think about what that implies. If that's going to happen, think about what that means. First, that Christians will need counsel and admonishment from time to time. It means that life will sometimes be difficult and painful and confusing and we'll need help. Paul expected Christians to run into rough patches and need help to find their way through. Secondly, it means that people in the church will be close enough to each other to know when a brother or sister is going through a tough time. That's not always the case. Third, that the Christian will be humble enough to divulge their situation to others when they need help and counsel. See, Jesus did not found the church of the Lone Ranger. He knew that each of us would sometimes need help, and he expected all of us to be ready to give it. The picture that emerges of a church is a church in which people know each other, care for each other, pray for each other. It's a church where people ask each other for guidance and are humble enough to receive it when they get it. It's a church where people speak truth, even hard truth, to each other, but they do so with love and goodwill. So does that mean that Christians will never need a professional counselor? They can just go to any old church member for life guidance. The answer to the first part of that question, will Christians never need a professional counselor, is maybe. Maybe. If they ask each other for counsel and they're humble enough to receive it, they may not need professional counseling. 
The answer to the second part of that question, can they just go to any old church member, is absolutely not. We need to be careful to go to people who are full of goodness, generous and kind-hearted, and are knowledgeable. Some people who don't love others still love to give advice. Psychologists say that such people are always measuring themselves against other people. And giving advice gives them a sense of superiority. And, and their advice sometimes is really quite good. The trouble is that they're not, at least not yet. It's going to take a little longer for the fruit of goodness to ripen in their lives. Until then, they display their knowledge for what they get out of it, not for what they give through it. Don't take someone's advice just because he or she is knowledgeable. You can say, oh man, he is really smart. He really knows the Bible. No, go to people who are full of goodness and knowledge. Goodness plus knowledge equals wise counsel. All right, let's wrap this up. Christians, we will need counsel and even admonishment from time to time. And we should be able to find it in our own church, including sometimes the counsel to consult a professional counselor outside the church. But for the kind of church that Paul envisions to become a reality, Christians need to know the scriptures, and they also need to know each other. Seeing one another at the end of a row for one hour each week is not enough. We need to find ways to get to know the people at church. So that's our application to this text, and it's our assignment for this month. Get to know people. Look, I'm a natural-born introvert. Isn't that funny that I get up here and preach all the time? I'm a natural-born introvert. I was the kid in class who would never raise his hand because he was too shy to answer a question. You know? And as a natural-born introvert, I know how challenging it can be to go out and meet people and know people. But it is important, and God will help you, and you can do it. So find ways to do it. If you're 20-something, go to that 20-something thing at the Hoops House that's coming up. It's a start. Sign up for dinner for eight. Go out for, by the way, we have done dinners for eight over the years, on and off, and they are always good things. You sit down with six other people, and you just have a good and formal time, and you get to know somebody a little bit, and that's what has to happen. Go out for brunch or lunch with someone after the service. Just find somebody and say, hey, let's go out and get brunch together. Get involved in a small group. Small groups are hugely important. Start a Bible reading group yourself. Find two or three other people. Say, let's read the Bible together and do it. Join a ministry team. There are all kinds of ministries going on. Join a team. Get to know people. We belong to the church of Jesus Christ, not the church of the Lone Ranger. We don't ride off into the sunset alone. When we asunder part, as that old hymn that we sometimes sing goes, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. Get to know, folks. All right, let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, may we be the church that Paul envisioned and Jesus that you died to make a reality. Lord, fill us with goodness and with knowledge. Not so that we can show off, but so that we can show up when our brothers and sisters need us. And we ask for this grace in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm.